University's talk show, Taking Old School Viral. I'm your host, Manda O'Fox Gillespie. It's embarrassing, all the stupid things I can think of to think about. Is there anything that could really bring my mind back to myself? Hello, neighbor, and welcome to Folk U Radio, where we ask our neighbors, what do you know? Folk University is an experiment in neighborliness, in slow learning, in using our interests, our skills, and our beliefs as a way of connecting and bringing each other closer in community. Today, we're doing a really fun show, part conversation, part book reading with poet and interdisciplinary artist Cortez Favorite. Aaron Robinsong, an author and biologist and husband to Aaron, Merlin Sheldrick. Where are you listening from today? Who are the people that have walked and cared for the land, the water, where you live, work, and play? Cortez Community Radio sits on the ancestral and territorial lands of the Klahus, the Klaman, and the Hamako peoples. I'd like to thank this land, the people who've walked this land through time, and all those that continue to love and work to honor this place we call home. I'm pretty excited that you guys are willing to take a little slice of your summer life and spend it with me uh, in this little radio station for um, a brand new experience, which is having the two of you talk like no one's listening in a little room together. So thank you so much for being willing to do that. Um, and we're, we're, the three of us are sharing two mics. So we're going to try to uh, do as good of a job as that as possible. And I was quite intimidated by the idea of what it would be like to introduce the two of you who are uh, so accomplished um, and known for many, many things, um, including you both have relatively new books out. And so I decided probably something that's never been done before um, is that I was going to ask, I'm asking uh, Merlin, you to introduce Aaron, and then Aaron, you to introduce Merlin to us. Well, um Arian is a poet and multidisciplinary artist living in Montreal and uh, who grew up on Cortez Island um, and who does uh, many, many things. But recently, um, most recently, perhaps um, her collection of poems, Wet Dream, is out. Uh, and this is a, a marvelous piece of, um, as it says on the back, an expansive book of ecological thinking for living on a wet planet on fire. Um, I think it's a, a, an amazing piece of, of art, uh, of thinking, of feeling, and, um, and I'm really excited for it to be out in the world and for us to be here talking about it today. Well, thanks, Merlin. 
I like I like this um, invitation, Manda. Thank you. Um, so Merlin Sheldrake. Well, I first met Merlin Sheldrake when he was a baby. <laughs> he is um, a British, but Cortesian in the summers for almost all his life. Um, he's a biologist um, who specializes in um, tropical ecology um, and, and fungal networks in particular, and is also just one of the most amazing science storytellers um, that I've ever encountered. And it seems like uh, around the world, people are really discovering that too. Um, I think that Merlin <clears throat> is a scientist who can convey just how wild and thrilling and exciting and um, just completely fascinating um, the world that we inhabit really is and and you know so much science that um, delves into that so many scientists are not able to quite uh, be the messenger of that in the way that Merlin is so um, and what else he's also an incredible musician um, of the accordion piano songwriting and um, an amazing fermenter and brewer and my husband <laughs> I have to say that I think it's not just me, but quite a few people based on the emails I got have this dream of just kind of being a fly on the wall at your dining room table um, and being in. So anyway, that's what I felt really compelled today to take a different kind of care. Usually I forget about all bodily needs, mine and my guests. But today I was like, oh, I want to create sort of a tea time situation where I can feel like um, I get to be this fly in the wall uh, of the dinner time conversation. So, so I want you both to feel really invited to just explore ideas and to really treat this as a moment like you're on, you know, radio where no one's listening. <laughs> and we get to try out new things together. Um, and so one of the things that I thought um, is quite remarkable is how you both have really different disciplines, but you both, to me, feel really deeply engaged in your own creative process. And I'm wondering if you could each tell me a little bit about your creative process and what it was like to create the books that have recently come out. <clears throat> um, yeah, great question. And, um, and I mean, in this in this book, Wet Dream, that's just come out. Um, I was really thinking, not just about water, but really trying to think with water and really think about, you know, I'm mostly water, and and what does where what does that water know that is currently me writing, you know, on any given day, and um, so my creative process looked a lot like reading a lot about water but also really just um looking at it like I, I wrote quite a bit of it um in Ontario in a cabin in like an off-grid cabin in the woods by myself which sounds like a bit of a cliche of like Canadian literature <laughs> and it was it was kind of it was um it was that a bit but um I had the the privilege to to go and stay in this cabin and I would just um really spend a lot of time with the lake and 
and um, be writing to it, writing through it. I also was like collecting rainwater, and this was a part of the process that Merlin really worked on with me. I always love talking about creative process with Merlin. Um, uh, and I was talking about really like how can we actually um, how could I how can I like metabolize or, or like really listen to what um, the water that I am might know because it's been around for like four billion years it's been a lot of places before it's um, temporarily my my flesh and and uh, saliva and stuff and so um, Merlin was really amazing in helping me think about a method for this and so I wanted to hook up with the hydrological cycle um, so it was not just like water generally but like specific water which water and so I was collecting rainwater on my balcony in Montreal this was also where a lot of the writing happened and then drinking it um, and each morning before I had had anything to eat or drink and um, I'd sit at my desk drink that water that came from the sky and write for the time that it was just moving through my body and really just like tuning into like what does that water want to say and um, and not just like eviscerating my ideas or anything or not I just came from an acupuncture session. I might use the wrong words. Um, I was not like evacuating myself, but I was really just like thinking of understanding myself always as being this this whole minglement that's always changing. Um, and so I would write as that water moved through me, and that was really like my writing practice. And then as soon as I had to pee, like the writing was over. And then and this was Merlin's edition is that then I I collected the urine that then came through so this was like really this passage of this water through the sky through my body then out when I had to pee and I would collect it mix it with water dilute it with water so that the plants would like it and then give it to my plants who would then um you know transpire and and send it back into the sky where it came from so it was you know things like this I'm really interested in metabolizing and embodying and um, imbibing um as a way to think through my body into the poems that I'm writing. So that's, you know, a few examples. <clears throat> Thank you. Um, my, my writing process took place over quite a long time, over, over two years, um, and then another year of post-production, editing, and um, taking comments from readers. And um, <clears throat> but the writing process itself was... Um, the moment-to-moment -moment challenge, what for me was to think that I was writing for, <clears throat> um, for on the one end of the spectrum, um, my fungal nerd friends um, who spend all their time researching and thinking about fungi, and the other end of the spectrum for, um, for say, a friend's grandparents who'd never read a book about the living world. Um, and so if I could write sentences and stories and a book ultimately that would be interesting for both of those two people then I felt that everyone in between would also be able to have um, a way in and so that was the thing I wrestled with uh, all the way through and that, that wrestling took different shapes and forms but uh, but all the while this was um, this was the kind of um, creative tension that I had um, uh, in front of me and, 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 and in me I love both of those um, stories and 
just the physicalness of thinking about that practice of writing while the water is washing through you is quite brilliant. Um, so I want to talk a little bit more about this idea of water and consciousness and the way they are connected because I feel like there's something so aqueous about, or I may have made up that word, so just go with me if I did, um, about about fungi and about um, ourselves, our world, uh, this place we live here um, in this moment. Um, so yeah, tell me a little bit about uh, the way that both of you feel that connection between water and consciousness and that it shows up in how you think about the world. There is lots of ways to think about consciousness. My my own sense um, is um, that consciousness is at some level uh, a basic feature of reality, um, a basic part of reality, rather than being something which is excreted by brains. Um, and so um, some people might call this a panpsychist view, there are lots of different types of panpsychism, um, but the basic idea being that that um, that experience is a fundamental part of what it is to be, and that humans are complex amplifiers of experience. Uh, other organisms are complex amplifiers of experience in slightly different ways. Um, but that experience itself um, is prior or upstream to to us uh, as as human organisms. So, in this view, water, um, like everything else. Um, and the molecules within water would have some kind of uh, experience. Um, and so, um, but on another level, I feel water is very helpful for thinking about consciousness because water is a um, some uh, medium through which waves move and waves occur and standing waves occur. Um, and I think waves and standing waves and um, resonance patterns in, in fluids are very helpful ways to think about lots of um, lots of ways that we work and lots of ways that we think. Um, and our brains are indeed um, a resonant organs with um, shimmering electromagnetic uh, standing waves um, moving in and across them um, all the time. And so um, looking at the vibratory patterns of water uh, and the ways that um, water can, um, can d reveal and display these vibratory patterns, I think can tell us something about uh, our particular form of um, consciousness, the ways that we are complex amplifiers of experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I hadn't thought about the waves aspect, but yeah, just the, the material, the medium that is water, even though, you know, grown up on this earth, looking at it for a long time, and still, whenever I look at it, um, it just surprises me that that element exists. Um, like, it seems like it, it's like a, an extraterrestrial thing, except for where the where the um, the Terra, where it, it, it lives, that we know of, at least in this point in the solar system. You know, there might have been water on, I mean, I think it's clear there was water on, on other planets, but right now in our solar system, this is where water <clears throat> is in its liquid form. <clears throat> um, the the temperature is exactly right that it can be in its liquid form, in its, in its um, solid form of ice, and <clears throat> so, in its vapor form. So, um, yeah, you know, I there's something about water and consciousness coming together on on this planet, um, which is clearly 
pretty um, unique and important in that um, there's there's almost nothing that I know of. I'm curious what you think, Merlin, <clears throat> on this planet that actually doesn't require water in order to function, um, at least in some point of its of its history. And in in the book, I say, and I don't know if this is true, <laughs> but I said there's um, that the only non hydrophilic substance is oil. Um, I don't know if you can think of any others, but um, yeah. Um, oils. <clears throat> oils, plural. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I, I'm, it's, I'm just thinking about that. Um, well, maybe I can add one more thing. To, yeah. Do you want to? I mean, I guess what I, I guess when I was mentioning last night, I did this lunch for the book, and I was, and I was talking about um, the book's title, "Wet Dream," as. Um, as being about like the planet on the one hand, like thinking about our, our planet Earth um, as being a kind of a wet dream because um, somehow here we need we need water in order to think. And I, I think of the water as this kind of transportation system of thought, like on a very material, practical uh, level, but maybe also on other kinds of memory that that might exist in water through all of the, the lives that it's um, animated through time. Um, so thinking about the planet as this kind of um, place of dreaming, which I think of as, as consciousness, as different states of, of consciousness, <clears throat> including just regular consciousness. <clears throat> Excuse me, my throat needs some fluids. Um, but also the, the brain as a kind of like wet dream, which is fun. There's so much fluid just around the brain. There's, um, you know, it, it's sort of suspended in fluid and um, the cerebro, cerebrospinal fluid. And so... Um, the brain is kind of this very wet and electric organ. Like it's, um, so that seems like a, where I got that idea. It wasn't from any kind of um, journals of consciousness. <laughs> that was really my kind of like <clears throat> what I deduced. But I, I'm really interested in what you would think about that, Merlin, like this meeting of like electricity, for instance, and, and water as well as consciousness. Well, it's such a, um, <clears throat> it's such a, major um i mean liquid i think liquidity itself you know li- the different kinds of liquid uh, and and also i think about um i think about water as being and you, you touched on it that the water is not just liquid water is also ice and also vapor um and the transition of water between these different phases is is such an important aspect of life mm-hmm. on earth if you think about the weathering of these granitic bluffs on cortez how do those cracks happen? How do these bluffs fall to pieces over thousands of years? Um, and it's this interface between, you, know, you might be a, a plant um, with a fungal, mycorrhizal fungal partner drilling into some cracks in a, um, well, some little parts of the rock and then some water might um, accumulate there and in the winter that might freeze, pushing apart the rock, making a bigger crack where the root can grow, attracting more water, then water freezes, mm-hmm. pushing that apart. Um, and this cycling of freezing and thawing I think is um, is really uh, really important and and and, and really uh, important as a geological force, but really important also in the lives uh, of the many creatures who make their home on Earth. If we think about the ice ages, uh, as ice ages, um, you know, the poles of the Earth, the frozen poles of the Earth. Imagine those um, growing in size and the ice um, reaching further down 
um, and then shrinking and retreating again. And that's happened multiple times. And every time that happens, um, everything changes. Um, and that's a freezing and thawing cycle. Um, and um, I was just up in Turbot Inlet uh, recently in, in these enormous valleys where the mountains come straight down into the sea. These are <coughs> glacial. Um, these are carved by glaciers. And uh, when you go to um, very old mountain ranges like um, the Appalachians up near Montreal, the top range, the top part of the Appalachians, you see these Laurentians, Laurentians yeah. which are the top of yeah. that big um, range. You, you see these mountains which have been ground down over successive ice ages into um, these these uh, these much smaller hills. kind of hills. <laughs> um, so you know, this freezing and thawing is something that interests me a, a, a lot. And, 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 um, and so when thinking about water um we, we we think about its liquidity a lot but mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. but ice also flows and mm -hmm. as does vapor mm -hmm. so one of the like i love I, first of all i love this uh way that water i start to see it through the way you speak about it and when you two speak about it together, not as um, the opposite of land or, or earth or soil, which I think maybe I would have before, right? Like rock and water. Um, so oppositional and then you see like, oh, th maybe they're not so oppositional. They're in this dance together. Um, and one of the things that's really stood out to me about both your works is the way that you are moving in or, or mapping what might be considered unknowable almost and i um and so i would love for you to talk a little bit about that and but to go into a little bit more what i mean i feel like so much of the universe if we take just the vast expanse of it uh seems so unknowable and often i feel like oh that unknowableness is out there right it's in the cosmos it's the big it's the planetary you know, or the extraterrestrial. And then what has really uh, compelled me about both of your works in different ways is the way that this thing, like the solidness of, you know, water, ice, evaporation, um, even words, language, poetry, and then going all the way to like soil, right? Like what's more knowable than soil? And then I feel like you read, you know, Merlin's work, and you're like, oh my God, it is so vast, so mysterious, sort of, you know, unknowable and needing to map in every, you know, in all those sort of ways that I used to imagine were just extraterrestrial. Um, so I feel like that's not really a question, but what it is is sort of like, I want to know how you like move into the idea of what is unknowable, how you walk that edge to find, like, to shine a light on new things, new thoughts, etc. Oh, that's an amazing question. Um, well, um, I mean, I, I, I think about poetry as access to information, literally. Um, I think that's why I'm, I'm drawn to poetry, because it's, it's like a way of thinking in, into what's I don't know. And, and, and um, it's really an amazing form of thinking for uh, not having to back it up. <laughs> with with any evidence but there's something but it's not that you I mean also as you know when you read poetry you know when something kind of feels true um you, you know you could also just 
just say anything you want, but um, but actually, I think there's a way that when you're really listening with poet, like through through the the form of thinking that is poetry, um, it's like um, you feel it. You feel it when you've you learn something, and I think like that's what poems are to me. It, they're really uh, how I learn about the world, um, learn about. Um, metaphysical things um learn about the nature of like what's on the other side of of life um or like what's the continued like, death <laughs> um you know all the, like things which we we can't really know about but i think that poetry is um and why is that i mean i i think i think we we all have access to so much more information than than we might um let ourselves um, kind of feel into. I think that like the kind of normal cognitive, very human to human kind of um, <clears throat> gathering of information and, and, and sorting it out and describing it and um, verifying it and all that stuff is, is really obviously very important and essential. But also if we're just thinking um, in, in terms of uh, limited human cognition which of course is always bound up with so many other beings that we you know and yet I think sometimes um, I can feel really caught in my thinking when I'm really trying to muscle it with my um, really rational kind of knowing so I think um, yeah I that's why I like poetry (laughs) because because and especially I, I was describing earlier too it's like it can also be a way to really um, to really both listen and also hear what other um, forms of knowledge are wanting to say. Um, like there is a there is an aspect sometimes of of um, I don't know. It's mystic in that way. Yeah. I think this word mystic is is so important. It comes from the Greek mind, which means um, closed or shut. And mysteries are, are by definition those things which are unavailable to us. Um, and so when I think about unknowability, I think about unknowability to whom? Mm-hmm. Um, because there are things that humans might find it hard to know um, that a beetle um, might not find it so hard to know. It might be obvious to the beetle or to the to a fungus or to a bacterium. Um, and so um, there are things that are humanness perhaps precludes us from um, but then maybe there are other ways as you say to access that information and that's why I think poetry is also so powerful um, as a way to um, as a way to think I think sometimes you know there's the, the amazing Japanese paintings where there's a line a single line that, that in that one line you can see um, a whole scene a whole figure a whole character a whole um, whatever it might be and and so much about that line is is what's not been drawn, and I, th- I find in poetry and often in your poems as well that that this, this sort of this, that stroke that that stroke of meaning that that reveals all of the unsaid and the unthinkable um, and the unknowable, and um, and so yeah, that's hugely powerful. And and I like the unknowable itself as as a uh, or the unknown. Um, 
as itself a, a, a motivating force for us, something that pulls us forward, um, like questions that we can't answer. Those questions that we can't answer um, are questions that summon us forward, summon, summon us forward into um, becoming. Um, once you've answered the question, you've killed the question, uh, in a sense. And so, not knowing is um, not knowing. I think it's a huge motivating force f for me in, in in whatever I do and investigate and think about, and and, and in the sciences as well, um, to be pulled into the space created by an open question. Well, and I love I love what you just said about. You know, something could be obvious to a beetle who has a very particular kind of perceptual apparatus. Um, that's a pointy way to say, like how they how they perceive um, the world, and and every creature sort of has a different. As I understand it, it's like they, creatures have so many different ways of perceiving that are so different from us and from each other. And I think I wonder if you remember this. I think it was maybe um, Goethe, the um, the uh, German poet and and romantic scientist. What would you call him? Um, I think it was him. I wonder if you remember this more than me. But um, who who had this idea that um, that together, like all the different perceiving creatures, the beetles and the birds and the um, trees and and the humans and you know everyone um, that that somehow they were each perceiving some different aspect of reality. That if you could put it together. Um, you would have the whole the whole story or something, but that you know we just we're, we're able to gather what knowledge our our particular setup can um, can access, but it's just a part of it that is um, that is spread out in 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 ways that um, it would be great if we could get together and really kind of share our knowledge more with the other. Um, beings on this planet if, <laughs> so that we could kind of put more of these mysteries um, together but I also love that they're mysteries and and I think that um, you know that we can just learn a lot by ob observing as you know as you do with fungi or um, as entomologists do with beetles um, I think a lot of it's like yeah maybe it's not that it's unknowable but it's a it's a it's a, a way of paying attention that um, is, is missing more than that it's like locked up in so, with some key um, somewhere so I love the how you described or leaned into the mysticism aspect in in both of your uh, works because I feel like we allow that in poetry and then not in science somehow um, but then at the same time recognizing sort of the great scientists often had a mystic edge, right? Kind of dreamt what they were going to then look at in more detail. Um, so, I, and then I have a couple things I really want to do. One, um, I love this uh, poem of yours, and I don't know if you feel like you would want to read it, but I feel like it strangely um, speaks to this, and it's your, uh, it's the poem, The Forces and the Forms. And there's there's a line in this poem and i'll tell you if you're gonna if you're gonna read it afterwards what it is but i feel like it sums up you know like a whole book maybe two that i've written that were you know more like environmental health research like this is like this is research and we're gonna write it down and um and i was like oh yeah poetry maybe that leaning into the storytelling or the poetic or the different ways of sensing 
there's these truths that maybe are communicated without needing quite so much word <laughs> to do it. So I don't if you uh, would you be willing to read? Um, uh, it's funny when when you asked when we were talking about this when we were talking about this question of unknowability or how do you know what's unknowable or or hidden in some way. Anyway, I thought of this poem, so I love that you. <laughs> Hold on one second. I'm just going to make the background sound a little bit quieter. I don't know, maybe we can all hum while we're doing that. <laughs> just no dead air on the radio. <laughs> the market's in full swing out the window. <laughs> I don't mind. I kind of, I kind of like the the background sounds. I don't know if it's distracting to people, but I mean, we could, we right. could keep the background. Should we? Yeah. Is it bothering? We're gonna keep the background. Okay. There's some crunching of gravel and some s sneezing earlier. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I really do. I I quite love background sound sometimes. <laughs> the forces, the forms. This form of life eats beauty, eats beauty to survive. Beauty is fuel, trashed beauty at all costs is the economy. But you actually can't kill beauty, so the economy is very unstable. So beauty, but beauty will eat the economy. Beauty will unmake computers and the shame shapes we made tending them. Love will eat our brains when we're tired of not checking the source. World without brains world without checking the source of the world, without checking the source of the forces, the forms. What else aren't we knowing if we don't know how to make beauty again, how to unstitch ourselves, how to face ongoing violence that is this form of life, as gentle, as mundane of heart to say, not even babies, not even you who loves beauty. Self-interest is apparently the great motivator and where is the self-interest? Where is the breathing self-interest could be? Not wanting to burn in your own bed, right? So soaking the pillows and mattress in a nerve gas to basically burn in your bed a whole new way in this system that doesn't love anyone, not even babies in their sleep, to know this as the world. But they still know it isn't, we do know, in every part of us we know, the way the chemical companies protect us also the way the sun comes into our room to shine on this provincial experiment in power. How can we know what we know? The dress on that goddess is hideous, and night and day we sewed and stitched it. Even after the gown of fire melts the town, even when the gown of wind shreds the house. Way after we knew when the pattern said gown, it was a shroud we were making and making. This realism is killing us. Realism carpeting over the shimmering we are when we destroy a shabbiness posing as the world and work for the boss of beauty. So beautiful. Thank you. And the uh, it's that image of you know, our own self-interest not burning in, you know, so we don't want to burn in our beds, so we put a whole bunch of neurotoxins and, you know, into our mattresses and um, so that we'll burn in a different way that really struck to me. And maybe what struck me about it and in part what 
I really love about both your work is the way that you're standing up in the world and being witness during such a difficult time to to look really deeply at what's happening and how and that struggle of how do you stay awake and curious and while seeing um you know while really seeing while being witness to what is happening uh in the world and so i guess that would be my question is how how do you stay um okay you know while you're so that you can be witness uh to what's happening well i don't know if i'm okay Um, but um, I find humor very important I was out sailing with some friends and we were talking about humor and the etymology of humor and sense of humor Um, Mm -hmm. and one etymological root is um, moisture or wetness from humid um, or like humid shares a root with humor um, coming from the humors um, the four humors that were seen in um, medieval European medical systems and philosophies to be um, the vital forces that made up our bodies. Uh, different different humors of the four would bring different elements or aspects, and the balance of those humors would uh, is what would give us our ability to live a, a balanced life. So I like this etymological root because it puts a sense of humor um, at the very core of what it means to be a, a, a human um, a human also um, humus humility um, I was talking with David Abraham yesterday he suggested this might be another way into the mm-hmm. word humor so sense of humor um, is something I tried to come back to and when there's a sense of humor failure then I then that's when I think that maybe I'm not okay <laughs> yeah yeah humor other I mean I also was just my immediate that was yeah, I'm not. I'm definitely not okay. And um, and I, I mean, I just have to cry a lot and not be like, oh, I'm, like it just. I cry in weird, as I, maybe many of us do, like for no real reason. For like listening to someone on the radio talking about something not that sad, you know. It's just I feel like I'm kind of leaking, <laughs> metabolizing a lot of the, um, the just like constant. Um, catastrophes that we are like ends of worlds um changes of you know even in the last five years um in in our living recent memory um just seeing so much catastrophic change that also knowing that that's just the beginning of say global um heating and um but at the same time i think because we we are all living in it um, day to day that there's this even though you know there are these big events that are so intense um, with you know war fire um, any number of things but there's something about just living in this slow disaster that is um, that is I don't even like to say climate change um, I'm really interested in different words for the different phrasings for that uh, um, global warming, global heating, the poet Rita Wong says global dying, <laughs> which feels a bit more accurate 
<clears throat> I mean, there's, there's so many ways to say it, which I think is speaks to what language does, you know. <clears throat> but I think, so on another scale, it's not slow at all. It's very rapid what's happened um, to the planet in the last um, 60 years, 200 years. Um, but I think because of our lifespans, it, it feels on one level slow. And so I think that there's something about, um, I think... And this speaks to like maybe a problem in human psychology around dealing with um, the entire um, catastrophe of, of climate change and not and but um, I think I I think I also remember I remember as a younger person feeling much more um, terrified and freaked out and um, having nightmares about what was happening to the world and I think now we're so in it um and you know many people have been in it for much longer obviously it's very unevenly distributed but um there's something about like also and not adapting in a way that is uh like the the frog or the crab in the heating up water hopefully um like remaining very awake to um all that's still possible uh, and I think a lot is also shifting at the same moment as this accelerating, um, just global dying. Um, but I think there's also so much accelerating in terms of how we understand the the planet. I just read this amazing line from this poet named Eleanor Ellie Moss, um, who said something like, we aim to kill, we know not what. We aim to kill. We know not what. And I think that there's so much um, just beginnings of knowing what and who um, and where we we are and, and who we're with. And um, at the same moment, and it seems like if we had more time um, with this rapidly claim, like changing everything, um, I'd be like, we'll be fine. We're getting there. But I think, you know, we, we don't have this long arc of history um, that, we, that we really need. So I don't know. I think I'm, I'm, this is a long answer now, and it's really, I could talk about this for days. But I think I just, I do feel a lot of, I take a lot of inspiration and, um, and in, in, in thinking into the different registers um, of of um, what kind of planet this is, and and so I, I think for me that means even if you know this planet is going to become too hot to live on, and in, in um, at some point soon for certain things, there's always things that that are uh, that love living in like 200 degrees, but um, but I think I think that um, there's also so many things being revealed and about each other, about being in relation, about um, that is coming through this pressure and this crisis. And so we know that in smaller crises that we're involved in locally, it's like so much comes forward and um, and so much is coming forward in terms of knowing who else and, and how else um, beings live on this planet that we are, we're kind of babies compared to. So I take a lot of inspiration from that um, and I don't pretend that's going to also avert a lot of the the global dying that's that's occurring.
You said this thing last night, Aaron, that then was really, I felt, melded nicely with some of the things in your book, Merlin. And you said, if intelligence survives and it will, or this is how I remember yeah. it. And I, I, you know, sort of my immediate response to that is like, will it? And then I feel like, but this is sort of, you know, the beautiful part of at least part of your book, Merlin, is looking at these like impossible places that um, fungi, you know, is sort of like, oh yeah, like glyphosate, like, oh yeah, I can figure that out. You know, and like, right, and and maybe how you were talking about the sort of pan consciousness, I'm not actually sure that was your word, but you know, if we get over the idea that we are the most intelligent, the only intelligent, the consciousness that is um, the most needing to survive, then uh, maybe there is hope in that. Um, and so this does turn into a question, like a lot of my rambling questions, which is just about that, of like where you find your hope or where you're seeing that edge of, of intelligence finding a way to survive. I find it quite helpful to, to remember the long view that, that to think about the five mass extinctions that have happened and, um, and quite how dramatic they were um, in the last one, the one that um, helped to wipe out the dinosaurs, uh, a huge asteroid hits the planet, spits debris halfway to the moon, creates a winter that lasts for decades, um, flaming deb debris rains down, starting forest fires, acid rain. Um, you know, it's a it's a it's a total disaster, um, and um, and out of that huge extinction um, emerges a whole new puff of thought, a puff of life um, in which we're now living. And that's happened multiple times. Um, and so um, the vast majority of all the species that have ever existed are extinct. And, um, and to think about this little moment of time as, um, as part of this much longer um, passage of, of time and of, of ebb and flow of um, the creative possibilities of life and so, um, obviously this is not very comforting for, for, <laughs> for us as humans in this situation, um, but, but, but your question I felt was getting at this larger issue of, of intelligence surviving. Um, and um, so, yeah, so, so, so I go there and, and, um, and, and also think about the ways that crisis is a crucible for new types of relationship, um, new ways of forming um, alliances between very different types of organism, new types of symbiosis arising that allow all the parties involved to extend their reach, to make a life in ways that they couldn't make lives before. And this is one of the main refrains in the whole history of evolution and the history of life, that symbiotic relationships um, come uh, arise in novel circumstances and, and permit new possibilities. So I, I like to think about the different ways that humans and, um, and more than humans might at this time of crisis um, be falling into new types of relationship that might change the landscape of what's possible. Yeah, and I just so, I so often feel that the, um, it's so easy to really get into the doom place. It's like the writings on the wall. It's just like, it looks so bad. You can read a lot of books um, that are based, that are very scientifically um, true about what is 
occurring um, in the climate. So, um, and which obviously I keep saying the word climate, but it's like that affects every aspect of life, and especially wars over land resources and so on. And so, um, it's so easy to go doom. Um, it's I think that's what I was I think trying to get at a little bit earlier, where I was feeling a lot of that. Um, maybe like 10 years ago and things are much worse but I feel less doomful and I think partly it's because I, I find it <clears throat> a bit unimaginative um I think it's I think it's very um in this wanting to know at this very uncertain time what's going to happen I think that there's a certain way of thinking that I mean you can have all the information I'm not saying like people are making up the doom the doom is there to um, to see very plainly and and um, and accurately and what we know scientifically and what we can experience um, just with our senses. Um, but at the same time, I think that life on this planet is much more creative. And, and indeed, as Merlin's been saying, it's like these crises, multiple crises um, through history, they always uh, yield something new because it's... We're, we're pretty imaginative not just us but the planet and um you know another another and uh, just to go deep time again for a second like another um amazing uh climatic shift that i always find really exciting and amazing to remember is um i'm really gonna have to help me with this but what era this was in but um when when Oc when the bacteria first created oxygen as a kind of byproduct that killed off can you can you talk about this mm. <laughs> the great oxygenation event which was a disaster major disaster <laughs> like awful disaster <laughs> oxygen being a highly reactive poisonous gas to almost all life forms at the time um, and so when photosynthetic bacteria uh, evolved the ability to photosynthesize um, and produce oxygen as a byproduct um, a huge um, die-off happened because this oxygen was a poisonous gas and until other bacteria worked out how to harness oxygen and use it in the process of releasing chemical energy which is what we do um, along with many many other life forms around today um, this oxygen was was nothing but a problem um, so mm -hmm. it's, an, it's an example of the kind of um, ebbs and flows and uh, and um, sort of Aikido flips uh, that happen uh, over the course of evolution. I I really appreciate um, those descriptions and the and also the sort of leaning into humor and um, I love the way you just described um, the sort of lack of imagination and 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 being too doomful. Um, which I, may, I think is just a really nice, articulate way to express what I've often felt. It's like, okay, well, I don't doubt that these are the end times again. It's just that it feels like there's a lot, you know, that's pretty awesome in the end times, like also. And so, you know, while we're waiting, can we still pop some popcorn and, you know, maybe put on some good music? <laughs> And I hope also communicate about that. And I just, again, I love that you, and there is in some, in, in both your guys' work and, 
and I'm, you know, more familiar with more of your work, Aaron, but I've always felt that there's this thread of witness and also of hopefulness. And I think that hope um, feels quite real because I now, because it explores into that, the imagination, into the, um, you know, I don't want to say humor, the humanness of it, right? Like it's it's full, full of life, um, even as it is oxygenating, you know, <laughs> or, or the opposite as it may be. Um, I was wondering if you wanted to, um, you know, share a story or um, a poem or something that you particularly um, find that gets you excited that you know keeps you on that yes yes like it's okay edge and i have a um there's a poem by um it's a see it's a prose um poem i suppose you could call it um eduardo galliano who's a um uruguayan author i'm just trying to find it so um and he writes these beautiful short stories slash portrait slash prose poems and there's one that I find wonderful um, hold on I'm just finding it now um, it's called The Perfect Crime this is the way things work in London the radiators give out heat in exchange for the coins they receive and in midwinter Several Latin American exiles were shivering in the cold without a single coin for the heater in their flat. They stared without blinking at the radiator. They looked like devotees worshipping before a totem, but they were poor, shipwrecked sailors considering how to finish off the British Empire. If they put in coins of tin or cardboard, the radiator would work, but later on the collector would find the evidence of their infamy. What to do? they asked themselves. The cold was making them tremble as if they had malaria. All at once, one of them let out a savage cry that shook the foundations of Western civilization. And so the ice coin was born, invented by a poor, frozen man. They got to work right away. They made wax molds that perfectly reproduced British coins. Then they filled the moulds with water and put them in the freezer. Being a freezer that you have half outside. The ice coins left no trace because the heat evaporated them. And thus, that London flat was turned into a Caribbean beach. Um, I mean, the story that really just gets me every summer for the last how many years been like seven maybe ten years um that the the humpbacks have been the whales been back in whale town and you know growing up here i i was i moved here in 1981 as a one-year-old one-and-a-half-year-old <clears throat> and i didn't ever see a humpback whale till <clears throat> in these waters until um, the last few years. And um, yeah, the whales are back in Whale Town. I was out fishing with Romney Shipway uh, just last week. And 
oh my gosh, we um, the the right the oceans were, looked like they were boiling, and I had never actually seen this before. But it's when all these little like herring or or, or smelt or like these little fr- these little tiny fish um, are are just so super abundant in the ocean and they're they're being fed on below Romney was explaining to me by the salmon and then they go up to the surface of the water and then the birds are eating them on the top um, and the sea just for all that it's struggling is also um, you just see how resilient it also is and and I mean that's the kind of hope I'm interested in it's not like oh great everything's fine um, the whales are back in whale town and the and the seas are, are bubbling with fish again. It's like, but at the same time, we've just, you know, Alexander Morton's work to, um, long work, I think over about how many, 20 years to um, to get the fish farms out of where the the, uh, the salmon are running. Um, you know, that's, that's just, that's finally happened in these, like in these waters. And that's the, so hopefully setting the precedent for, um, for other, you know, Tofino and all the way up the coast. And so, you know, the salmon, I, I am suspending my, I don't know enough uh, probably about the science, but I'm suspending my judgment right now about what's going to happen because that move, you know, is, is um, already having an effect from, from, as I understand it. So um, I think, I think it's so important to to remember these things and to really take them in when they're happening because it doesn't mean everything's going to be fine but also some things everything's trying to live and 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 some things are managing to live and and I just feel that every time I see those whales which is basically every time I take the ferry I imagine it's we're all getting to see them a lot. Yeah. It's one positive thing about spending so much time waiting for ferries in the summer all that whale watching. Um, I'm going to play a song um, that uh, was, uh, it's your poem set to music, is that right? Mm -hmm. Can you explain it while I get it uh, ready? So um, I was very obsessed with homonyms and homophones for quite some time, those those words that have the same sound, but very different meanings. And um, so, for instance, um, uh, bomb, B-A-L-M, and bomb, B-O-M-B. <clears throat> and um, so I wrote this poem um, called The Woods, and every word in it is a homonym or homophone. They're the same thing, homophone, same, it means same sound, and homonym same name so whether they're spelled differently or the same they just they all sound the same so um so it's very different to read this poem on the page than than um than how it it sounds but it's it's called the woods and it's a love it's a love song to trees and Cosmo Sheldrake Merlin's brother uh beautifully put it to music and um yeah if all goes well we will be playing it now so let's see what happens
It was a little short. <laughs> uh, since we're on the um, the music kick, what about if I played Entangled Life? It's also really short. Would you? Could you say anything to set this up? Yes. So um, when my book came out, I um, I inoculated it with oyster mushroom mycelium, and um, to let the fungus eat the book um, about fungus, and um, and then um, and then I ate the mushrooms that grew out of the book, so I could eat my words, and um, as part of this process. Um, Cosmo had asked me what I thought the fungi were, you know, what they made of the book, and I said, "Well, I, I don't know." Um, and he suggested that we send a copy, a myceliated copy of Entangled Life, to um, someone called Michael Prime, who's an acoustic ecologist and who uses biosonification, um, using electrodes to, um, to 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 pick up the um, bioelectrical fluctuations in the fungal activity and then convert those into a sound so we can hear the activity of the fungus with our ears. And so Michael Prime um, biosonified myceliated, this myceliated copy of Entangled Life. And so we had these uh, rather remarkable noises, um, which we then used as the basis for this song. Um, so Cosmo created this song um, as a kind of jingle um, for the book made out of the sounds of the fungus, the, of the sounds of the sonification of the fungus eating entangled life. Being fungi living groundwork, mycelium, mycelium. Growing like in stretching Growing lifetime, like in stretching lifetime, dwelling waste, falling waste. They really liked it. <laughs> How lucky. Um, this has been so amazing. Uh, I feel like I could, um, go on and on, but I thought, um, I would end with a question and then asking you to read a really, really old piece of work of yours, uh, Aaron, but it's one that really is close to my heart because it's inspired a lot of what I've done both with Folk University and then um, more recently with the Cortez Island Academy. So it's really meaningful to me still. <laughs> um, so, but kind of to set us up for that poem, I want to talk, I want, maybe we can finish by leaning in a little bit to how we communicate with the next generations um, and what you feel like is the role of, you know, what we've typically called education, but maybe it's really just a form of preparing and communicating with the next generation about what they need to know to survive and thrive on the planet that they're inheriting. So I was wondering if you could lean into that a little bit and just sort of like what it is, you know, what if you were to design kind of the perfect uh, preparatory class um, 
or knowledge exchange for, for, for the young people today, what that would be, what you want them to know, what you want them to be exploring to prepare for the planet that they're inheriting? I know that's a big question, but... I think um, I heard recently about something that happens in, in some design processes in Japan um, where people, are, civilians, are, um, are chosen to represent the future generations so that their voices are around the table in planning decisions, in the meetings, in all of that kind of um, process. And I just thought that was such a helpful, um, a helpful way to think about um, decision-making. And, and also what an interesting process it would be to be one of those elected civilians in that, in, that, in that moment to be representing the voice of future generations. So I wonder whether or not this question would be best, um, whether a kind of game of um, young people all taking it in turns to represent voices of future generations um, in, a, um, in a room together um, and through that process to, um, to devise some kind of um, forward-looking, forward-feeling um, curriculum. Mm. <clears throat> I mean, partly I think that um, anyone designing a program for, <clears throat> for all kids, like we have in the current public school system, for instance, is just like, that's part of the problem is is um, that it gets so homogenized and and you know I might have loved English class other kids might have been totally traumatized by English class you know and and so I partly think um, that it would what I would have wished for I think and and I'm a different I'm not the generation you're speaking about but I think this probably um, doesn't doesn't change it's like some ways so that kids could really um, have help in discovering their gifts and their passions and and really be supported uh, in in that and where they're really seen for for who they are and what they're bringing and um, and I know that you're really doing that Amanda in the in the work that um, the way that you work with um, the kids on this island which I find just so exciting like I, I, I think um, what really, what really pains me about the public school system is this way that so many kids have to wait. I felt like this, like to wait until I'm, what, like 17 years old to kind of like get to what I'm actually interested in and, and all that, all that gets really, um, messed up in that time. Um, so I, that's not, I don't know what the class is, but I, and I would certainly say, um, that also, that also if there was one class, <laughs> I would be like, it's a poetry class because, <laughs> because, um, I have written, po I've done, I've taught a lot of, uh, poetry classes for kids and there's lots of kids who are dyslexic, who do not like to write, um, themselves and we always find a way to but the, every single one of them is so poetic and creative in in their way of expressing and so it's like I would love to have a poetry class that's like poetry in the big sense of of uh, not just words on a page but um of I think of, of metabolizing experience of feeling into 
particular experience, especially of, uh, I guess, experience that only that person can really know and um, and and tell about. <laughs> it's really hard to stop because I just have so many things I want to <laughs> talk to you about. Um, so I I'm. You know, hopefully not against her will, but I am making Aaron read out loud on the radio a poem that I love, and um, and then afterwards we can tell people where they can go and hear more and learn more and read more if they are as obsessed with you too uh, as I am. So I wrote this poem. Let's see. I'm just going to look in the... So this is from this book, uh, a chat book I made um, in 2006, so almost 20 years ago, um, called Illegal Tender. And I think maybe there's some kicking around Cortez in the free store or um, the library. I don't know. Amanda has a copy. Um, I'm not lending it. <laughs> um, and yeah, I haven't, I haven't personally even read this poem for a long time, so I hope I still um, stand behind it but certainly my younger self really did, and Amanda does, so I, I trust that. <clears throat> and it is, um, it's, it's divided into parts that are um, titled with homonyms. So the first one is Alter, A-L-T-A-R. Opening chorus, sung by two eight-year-old girls. When I was five, I went away. I went away on a yellow bus. We sailed away from the bus stop. I was alive. I was five. And so we set out on a 13-year training that demanded nothing less than my youth, and I was ready to give it. I was ready to learn the secrets. I thought I would learn how to be fearless, the points to touch on a human body to paralyze it. I would learn to build. I would learn medicines, dances to bring the rain, and songs to bring back to this world a per person balanced precariously on the edge. I would learn magic and sword dances, calligraphy and contortion. I would be inducted into the mysteries of mathematics and build the endurance of a samurai who rises at four and runs up mountains. I thought it must be very important. Alter. A-L-T-E-R. Some of the fun of knowing a child is the, is the surprise of themselves furled inside. Will they be an ontologist? Will they write novels? Will they dance? Will they study birds? Will they fight fire? Will they start fires? Will they corner a bird that has hit a window? Will they kill it in a gang? Will they not dance with her at the school dance? Will they write things about him on the wall? Will they make him stand underneath them when the bus comes in the morning? Will his head fall down? Will they laugh? Will he not even tell his mother? Revolt. Chorus, sung by the same girls, only now they're 16. <clears throat> when I was five, I went away. I went away on a yellow bus. We sailed away from the bus stop. I was alive. I was five. Then we got to school and there was a big kid against the wall under a scrawl which read, Jordan's dick is very, very small. And we didn't build forts and we didn't learn medicines and we didn't learn sword dances. We didn't seem to learn much of anything at all. 
which is curious because we were always very busy or we got sent into the hall. I quit school in grade two. I don't really remember why. I just wasn't curious about it anymore. Maybe they thought, give her a few days. She'll want to go back. But I was back. I was back on the beach, diverting streams, catching bullheads, reading comics, building forts, crushing up plants on rocks for medicine, but nobody could tell me what they were good for. And then the ruse was up, 11 more years that I did not train as an assassin, a master craftsman, or even learn Latin. Revolt. As I rode the bus home after my last exam, I was not tired, although I had been very, very busy. How is it possible, I thought to myself, I have already forgotten everything. The possibly beautiful poems, facts, and theorems, and since that time I have slowly, slowly begun to learn the secrets. Thank you for doing that. Do you still stand by it? <laughs> uh, yes, and maybe there's some cultural appropriation issues in there a little bit. But yes, um, yeah, for the most part. But I do want to say that was my experience largely of school. And also I had some incredible teachers on this island who also were my absolute um, lifelines. And one of them was Anna Gregg, Anna um, Stranin later. Um, and... Um, yeah, so there just there was there's always such beams of light, but yeah, so I wanted to add that. And you both have um, books right now. You have a book that is so new, Erin, that it is they're only available in Cortez and not even there anymore because it sold out so quickly last night. Um, I was hoping you could tell us just a little bit about this beautiful um, work of art and where people can find out more about you and buy this book um, and uh, yeah and all of that and then Merlin uh, if you could tell people the same thing about um, your book and where they can find out more not just about your book but about you um, etc yeah so this book is called Wet Dream. It's published by Brick Books, and it's a really beautiful object, as well as um, all my new work. <clears throat> um, it did sell out last night at Marnie's, but there are lots more on the way. Uh, I don't know how, but when, when this first shipment took about less than a week, so I think there should be books at Marnie's soon. Um, you can also order it directly through the publisher, uh, brickbooks.ca, or, you know, just Google it, um, and um, I'm sure no one on Cortez shops at Amazon, um, but you can also get it on there. But you do have to type in my name because as of yet, if you type in just Wet Dream, many other things will come up. It's not my book. So, um, yeah, search my name um, there. Um, and ask your, if you're not on Cortez, um, please ask your, your local bookshop to carry it. Um, so, yeah, lots of ways you can get it in, in all the ways. I'm just going to throw out a couple things, too. Um, your, if you'd remind people about your website. And also, uh, it really helps authors, and uh, including and probably most especially authors of poetry, if you can go on everywhere, particularly Amazon, whether you buy the book or not, and just 
review it, review it, review it, particularly if we ever want Wet Dream to come up as a book of poetry <laughs> by Aaron Robinson song yeah. and not all the other things that it might come up as. So, um, uh, so the website? Yeah. Um, oh, yeah, I never tell people about this because it's always hopelessly out of date. <laughs> um, but I'm going to update it. So it's AaronRobinsong.org. And, um, and yes, please, 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 um, even if you don't have time to write a review, um, if you can even just go on Amazon, not buy from there, just leave a five-star review, that will really help it, it show up there. <laughs> um, um, my book's called Entangled Life. You can find it in bookshops. You can find it online as an audio book, wherever you get your audio books. Um, although I've been told that... Um, People send me emails saying that they they fall asleep when listening to the audio book, and some people say they write to thank me for curing their insomnia and changing their relationship with their husband. They can finally sleep after decades of insomnia. So, all I would say with the audio book is that if you listen to it, make sure you're not operating heavy machinery. Um, I know a lot of people drive while listening to audio books, and this does keep me awake at night. Actually, <laughs> uh, maybe I should start listening to the audio book. Um, but um, and I have a website, MerlinSheldrake.com. And uh, you can find me on Instagram or Twitter if you if you like to do that. Thank you both so much for taking the time to be here and uh, fulfill one of my dreams, which is to get to be that little fly in the uh, aura of your brilliance. And um, it's been a real pleasure. And I hope I can, you know, invite you again and have you show up to Folk You Radio here on Cortez Community Radio, CKTZ eighty nine point five FM. Um, and I am now going to do that thing where I talk while I find my outro music, uh, which, you know, theoretically I could have been organized and done before. But so exciting to have had this opportunity to have these splendid guests on. And it's wonderful, as always, neighbors, to get to be in community with you. Thank you for tuning in. And until next time. Think. That's it for another edition of Folk U Radio. If you'd like to learn more about Folk U or subscribe to our podcast series, visit us at folku.ca. That's F O L K U.ca. Folk U is produced at CKTZ 89.5 FM, CortezRadio.ca. My little brain's almost always got something lame it's got to say. It's embarrassing all the stupid things I can't think of to think about. Is there anything that could really bring You know I wouldn't have no 
You are listening to Folk U Radio here on CKTZ 89.5 FM, Cortez Community Radio, or on the web at cortezradio.ca. This is your host of Folk U Radio, Amanda O'Fox Gillespie, and we have a little bit of after show moments here. I'm going to do a few announcements, but first I thought it'd be nice to listen to a little bit more music by... Um, Inspired by our visit today with Merlin Sheldrick and Aaron Robinson. This first one is Pleuratus Fungus, and this is by Merlin Sheldrick, and this is with uh, related to his giving sound to fungi work that he's doing. All right, one moment. How about we go ahead and play the Entangled Life one again, which is pretty short, and then um, one called The Moss by Cosmo. Legend has it that the moss goes on the north side of the trees. Legend has it when the rains come down, all the worms come up to breathe. Legend has it when the sunbeams come, all the plants they them with their leaves. Legend has it that the world spins round on an axis of 23 degrees. Green tentacles to flow 
listening to CKTZ 89.5 FM Cortez Community Radio on the web at cortezradio.ca There is a lot going on still in these dog days of summer on Cortez Island. You can find out more uh, by going to cortezisland.com or listening to the radio. A few things that you might be interested in. Tonight, Friday evening, August 26th, from 8 to 9 p.m. in the event tent, free by donation, is a um, manuscript reading by S. Portico Bowman called Would You Give Up Arms for Wings? A story inspired by the visionary life and writings of Paulus Berenson. So that is happening at the Hollyhock event tent. Uh, tonight, Friday, August 26th at 8 p.m. There is also the opening um, at the Museum Art Gallery, uh, at the Art Gallery in Whale Town called Water Color by Judith Williams. So the Old Schoolhouse Art Gallery, there's an opening this evening from 6 to 9 p.m. And then that will be open uh, to the public on the weekends from 2 to 6, I believe, are the times, so don't miss that. Also, tomorrow, Sand Castle Day at Smelt Bay. This is a um, mostly all-day event, um, I believe closer to the morning. I'm not actually sure when to show up. Um, you go, you join the fun, build your favorite structure, Lots of categories, opportunities to to win things, but mostly to have fun and be in community. The Gorge Saturday Market and the Friday Market at Manson's are all still happening. And on the, uh, the weekends, the Museum and Info Center is open, as is the Wild Cortez exhibit at Linnea. The Women's Center is open uh, on Fridays including today. There's a number of drop-in uh, yoga classes available, 
And there's still room in the Von Donup cruise with Misty Isles on Sunday. That's a wonderful opportunity to take part in a local treasure of going out on Misty Isles. That is going to be um, on Sunday from 10 to 5. Um, and is sponsored, I believe, by the museum. So check that out. Um, Ultimate Frisbee is back on Sundays at 10.30. And you can go out and enjoy that. Lots more going on. So check out CortezIsland.com and learn more. Stay up to date and tune in to the radio. We look forward to it. Oh, uh, one more thing. It is an educational event by the Cortez Island Death Caring Collective. And that will be uh, about um, how to manage probate, what that means, what you need to know if you're ever in the position. Um, do I know when that is? It is August 26th that that is happening. Um, and you can learn more about that. Um, so check it out and get more details on CortezIsland.com. Thanks so much for tuning in to another Folk You radio session. This is the after show where we just give you a little details about what's going on in the community. You're on CKTZ 89.5 FM, CortezRadio.ca. Thanks for tuning in, neighbor. <laughs>